Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black talks to The Critic's deputy editor, Graham Stewart, about the centrality of religion to the status and mission of monarchy in Britain and Europe. On Christmas Day, 800 AD, Charlemagne, King of the Franks, was crowned Holy Roman Emperor by Pope Leo III. Um, Jeremy Black, how significant was the role of the church and the monarchy in Christendom uh, a little over a thousand years ago? Well, I think you're right to look at the relationship between the British monarchy and religion in terms of a long-term context. I mean, in essence, Christianity began as a, a Jewish heresy which was unacceptable to the Romans, rather like Judaism was unacceptable to the Romans because it was monotheistic and therefore could not be incorporated into the Roman polytheistic pantheon, the Olympian pantheon. Um, and that situation encouraged what you might call persecution, the Romans wouldn't have seen it as persecution, but what you might see persecution until obviously there was a change and after a process of some, uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't instantaneous, but after a process of time, um, Christianity became the only religion accepted in the Roman Empire. And in essence, a relationship developed um, one that focused primarily in Byzantium, the Eastern Roman Empire, in which um, the um, emperor uh, continued, if you like, the Roman process in which he, and it was always a he, was a sacral being, sacred being, but it was also there to protect the church, and the church prayed for him and supported his position, which in a way, um, as it were, took forward, though in a monotheistic fashion, the Roman equation. And the interesting thing about 800 is that the Pope, as part, if you like, of the attempt of a number of Italian principalities um, to break free or constrain or limit Byz the position of Byzantium, seeks to do the same with Charlemagne, who becomes, as it were, the heir to the Western Roman Empire, which had ceased in 476. And I suppose what you could say is that that became the model. I mean, in fact, the practice had already existed. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the church in the Western area did not wait uh, for this effort, uh, for this event, became the, uh, the situation in which the church was the arm of the state and the state was the arm of the church. And that kind of ideological cohesion designed to provide stability across the range was in one respect a way to ground the new dynasties that took power after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. In another respect, it was a way to give these dynasties and particularly the individual kings within them um, legitimacy and prestige. Um, 
But it also, I think, one needs to be clear about this, attempts to explain religion simply in kind of bread and butter, sort of pseudo-Marxist functionalist terms are inadequate. Quite clearly, there was need for a whole host of beliefs, rituals and practices, whether you wish to call them foundation myths, whether you wish to call them uh, reenactments of the... Um, of the, as it were, cyclical nature of life, whether you want to call it um, sort of life event validators, however wish you want to see it, uh, but also people trying to make sense of their own world in which religion clearly played a role. And because Christianity was very much a monotheistic religion, that meant um, extirpating the so-called paganism or heathenism of the um, uh, of the, as it were, original barbarian invasions, I put barbarian in inverted commas, but also turning against heterodox Christian sects, such as the Arian so-called heresy, for example, in seventh, Arian, A-R-I-A-N, not the uh, Y, um, in, uh, in the seventh century and so on. And in some respects, you could argue that Protestantism in the 16th century is another instance of the struggle between the pretensions and demands, requirements for orthodoxy of the uh, papacy and uh, alternative um, outcomes within Christianity. So this relationship, I think, is in place. Um, Charlemagne and the Pope provides a new model for it, but it, they don't originate it, and it remains consequential thereafter. Uh, England and England's kings, both Anglo-Saxon and um, Norman, are very much part of Christendom, but not part of the Holy Roman Empire. Did they um, have a, a different attitude to in uh, the middle of continental Europe, or really is, is this a, 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 an almost a uniform notion of the relation between uh, church and crown at this time? Well, again, that's an excellent question. Um, and of course, the practicality is what we know about the views of the monarchs is rather limited because of by the nature of things, those who were literate were clerics and they tended to offer uh, particular accounts of particular views. Um, I think it's fair to say that similar um, attitudes can be seen um, in the monarchies in the Anglo-Saxon realm, the old English monarchy of the 10th century, the, uh, as it were, the House of Wessex on a national scale is a good example. Previously, of course, as you know, there had been struggles between Christian Anglo-Saxon rulers and um, non-Christian ones, Pender of Mercia, for example, against the Northumbrians. Um, and I think it's um, reasonable to say that the church and successive dynasties found it very um, helpful to each other to link. Um, and indeed, um, obviously, there were martyrs, so-called, uh, who were monarchs, uh, St. Edmund, for example, um, you know, the, the um, uh, the basis of um, of the town in Suffolk um, was a was was a king, um, and uh, the idea being that um, the Christian identity 
of um, these kingdoms was under pressure from non-Christians. I mean, the practicality is uh, that when Wessex and Mercia were slugging it out in the early ninth century, they were both Christian. <laughs> so, but nevertheless, this, this thesis could play a significant role. And of course, it's linked to and interrelated with the, the process in which subsequently new ruling dynasties, the Danes between 1016 and 1042, and the Normans after 1066, validate themselves in part in providing accounts of how they can accommodate themselves to the already existing uh, English religious practice in the case of the Danes, who are Christian by this stage, and in the case of the Normans, uh, by very much arguing that they're fulfilling the providential purpose of returning England to a true, uh, i.e. papally approved uh, set of Christian practices and organisation. And that latter theme, of course, plays out into the 16th century, so that you can see for example, the French invasion at the end of King John's reign, and prior to that, Innocent III putting King John under a papal interdict, is presented in part as an attempt to, um, as it were, bring the Kingdom of England in line with uh, how it should be in accordance with papal governance. And, you know, you can take that right the way onwards to the attitude of popes in the 18th, sorry, in the 16th century to Henry VIII and subsequently excommunicating Elizabeth I. So that there is that, uh, there is that role. Of course, the position of the papacy uh, is weakened by a number of factors. We'll leave aside struggles between popes and anti-popes and schisms which of course are important. Um, we'll leave aside the secondary situation related to that, that popes, as with the uh, French in the 14th century, or indeed the Habsburgs in the 16th century, often associated themselves or were associated with ruling houses that were opposed to that of England and could very much be seen as pursuing these kind of geopolitical interests. But there's also just the simple point, and Peter Linehan's book on the governance of the church in Spain and Castile in the early 13th century made this point. Innocent III, in the period of Innocent III, who was one of the most authoritarian and sort of activist popes, very talented man, he could issue instruction after instruction. It didn't mean it actually, as it were, switched the light switches in Castile. And I think there is that extent. I mean, when I was an undergraduate, um, I went to the lectures of Walter Ullman, and I also went to classes he took, and Ullman, who was very, very keen on the idea that uh, the medieval Christendom was explained in terms of the development of papal governance and in terms of the theme of papal authority, and he went from, you know, very much the Gregorian reforms through to innocent. Well, that's fine, but it, of course, what it doesn't describe is what's going on on the ground, and Ullman, I mean, one of the great weaknesses of Cambridge has always been um, as a, a history um, faculty, that it has put far too much emphasis on ideas as opposed to practice or theory as opposed to the nuts and bolts of what happens. And, you know, uh, that's famously so with Cambridge political theorists who are overly dominant in the faculty. But I think it's also the case in, um, it was the case with Ullman when he was in many senses a, a great player in the teaching of medieval history there. And from that perspective, 
whatever the popes might fulminate, in practical terms, the attitudes of successive kings in uh, England towards clerical matters, clerical governance, um, was in a way very significant. Now they could go over the overboard. I mean, you know, having the Archbishop of Canterbury killed in the case of Thomas of Becket was not prudent. Um, and, you know, there had to be, as it were, an adjustment, if you wish to, put, to use a modern term. Um, but on the whole, um, as long as, you know, you stayed within the bounds, the, 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 the church in England was considerably more under the authority or linked to or looked to the crown than the theory of a universal papacy might, um, might postulate. And I think one could take that a stage further, because as you may be aware, if you're interested in the evolution of Catholic thought, um, you could argue that it's really only um, in the, first of all, with the attempts of the Council of Trent and the Counter-Reformation, but really only in the late 19th century that the papacy becomes much more authoritarian towards national Catholic bishops and bishop uh, episcopal organizations. And prior to, and so that in other words, the Catholic Church of today, which very much presents itself in terms of a long-term history, is in some respects, if one wishes to be provocative, but why not be provocative, Graham? In some respects, in its organizational practice, um, not much older than the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. Yeah, that's something to think about. Set an essay on, would you not think? Suitably provocative. <laughs> there is no point being anything other, Graham. If we cannot get people to think, I mean, obviously, I'm well aware exceptions can be made, but the point I'm trying to say is the argument of a universal, unchanging church with Protestantism or what had come before as heresies is, in fact, a travesty of the, of the more general discussion and misrepresentation Catholic history uh, in a way that's quite significant. Mm. Um, in the early years of the 13th century, England's King John is, is excommunicated by the Pope. Um, how often is this device by a Pope of excommunicating Christian monarchs? I mean, how regularly is that used and how effective is it? Well, it's only effective if you can get people to uh, try and implement it. I mean, look at the papal excommunication of Elizabeth I, for example. I mean, it puts your clerics in their own country in a problem. But the reality is um, that a much greater problem in John, John's reign is caused by John's loss to Philip of France, of uh, Normandy and Anjou. So, for example, religious organisations or indeed uh, aristocrats who held land and possessions in those areas had to decide whether they were going to heed John's injunctions or Philip Augustus's injunctions. That, in some respects, is more significant. Um, and the I mean, innocent in many respects represents an aspiration rather than an achievement. And thereafter, as I think I've mentioned, uh, the papacy is affected by schisms. It has its so-called Babylonian captivity in Avignon. I think it's fair to say that the prestige of the papacy uh, falls. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I think it's fair to say it takes a long time to recover. Mm -hmm. um, 
monarchs during this period are, are often referring to one another as uh, you know, your most Christian majesty and uh, other titles which make very clear that they are part of, of Christendom. I wonder to what extent the external threat of the Turks in the Ottoman Empire, you know, reaching the gates of, of uh, Vienna uh, uh, and so on, is, is a bonding agent, um, not too much between the, the various monarchs of Europe in itself, but in terms of reinforcing the fact that they are Christian kings who are at least, uh, if nothing else, united against a, a common foe. Yes, that's interesting. Can I just make that point about being Christian kings? Of course, as remains to the to the present day in the case of Her Majesty, the coronation process um, carries with it, um, as it were, a, a process of, of sacralization, anointment and so on. And I think all of that is significant in terms of um, the idea that the monarch is, as it were, a separate figure. I mean, one of the classic examples of that, although not coming from Christianity, coming from medicine, is the idea which you will see in Macbeth when there is the reference to the silver blood of King Duncan, the idea that the monarch actually has different colour of blood. Or one of the things I particularly found uh, instructive were the kings of France who were able to take communion um, in both kinds as if they were a cleric and um, it was certainly the case in the 17th century that trumpets sounded when the king was uh, taking communion you know there there is a degree of this uh, sacral figure which is quite important now as far as the Turks are concerned uh, I mean obviously that's not new um, the attacks by what one might refer to as non-Christians heathens whatever you want to call them had um, get, been going on for a long time previous to that and in many senses the crises of the 9th and 10th century is far greater. I mean the Magyars get to the Lechfeld uh, near Munich in 955 being defeated by Otto I which was one of the great triumphs of medieval Christendom. Um, you know there are there are um, um, Moors settled in Provence, La Garde Frenet, who capture famously the Abbey of Cluny, one of the greatest of the uh, uh, you know, have raiding all over southern France. So in some respects, this isn't new. I think that's point one. Secondly, what one had had inevitably, and this does not mean that people are necessarily hypocrites, is you had had simultaneously anti-anti-Christian, um, in other words, um, uh, attitudes, propaganda, themes like, for example, the uh, the destruction of the uh, Moorish base at uh, Lagarde Frenet, Fra Fraxinentum is an example of that, but also you had had expedient uh, alliances with these non-Christian powers, and in fact you do that during the Crusades. I mean the Crusades sees at times um, but both sides, if you wish to use those confessional terms or religious terms, playing off on the divisions between and within them. And, you know, so that uh, the Christians benefit from the struggles between the Seljuks and the Fatimids in the uh, 1090s and so on and so forth. So you get alliances across the board and you refer to the Turks. Well, of course, 1521, Belgrade falls, 1526, Buda and Pest 1529, they besiege Vienna for the first time. It is worth bearing in mind that soon after, 
the King of France, allies with Suleiman the Magnificent against the Emperor Charles V, and indeed allows the use of um, the major French uh, naval port in the Mediterranean, Toulon, allows that use for um, Ottoman warships. So I think one's got to be careful here. Um, and uh, as was pointed out at the time, um, there were frequently a combination, a concatenation of interests, which are quite, you know, quite significant. So one needs to point that out. But you are right, there is a sense of Christendom. I mean, when, for example, Vienna is besieged again, and more famously in 1683, that is followed with interest in London, even though London is Protestant. Um, you know, these things are regarded as pressing on a common Christendom. But at the same time, there is also an awareness of tension between Protestantism and Catholicism. And for that matter, Catholic powers themselves are opposed to each other, and habitually the French ally with the Turks against the uh, against Austria. It's hard to really see a, an obvious difference, other than respect for the Pope, between the uh, Protestant princes and kings that, that emerge um, following the Reformation and, and 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 Catholic ones. I mean, the the divine right of kings, as the Stuarts understood it, you know, they they were. Uh, you know, high church Protestants, but, but nevertheless, you know they they could um, they, they could teach the, the Catholics a thing or two in terms of uh, of, of claiming um, um, holy support. Is there actually a useful difference to to distinguish uh, Protestant and Catholic monarchs following the Reformation? Well, that again is an excellent question. You're looking, obviously, in particular at their at their role in sort of politics, if you see what I mean, as opposed to personal devotion. Um, well, remember there are Protestantisms, or Protestantism has many many chapels, as it were. So that the uh, I mean the the England has an exceptionalism. It is the country of the what we would later call the Church of England, the Anglicanism. But that's different in practice to the Lutherans or the Calvinists. Um, so I wouldn't say necessarily that Charles I's attitudes in the 1630s are characteristic of, for example, the the town the town burghers at uh, of Amsterdam at that very moment. Uh, let, you know, so I think that there is a diversity there. Cl classically, Protestantism ends up being far more tolerant. Now, in part, that is a matter of um, political necessity. Um, in part, though, it is a consequence of dethroning the authority of the papacy to expound scripture and to, um, as it were, provide a validation of knowledge, as you see with, for example, the Inquisition having a go at Galileo in the early 17th century. I mean, there is no agency in Britain, England, I should say, at that point to do the equivalent. So, and I would say that, you know, at the present moment, we're uh, not encouraged. I notice the BBC, I think, is being pressed to make everybody be very nice about all religions, which is a farce, of course, uh, because religions are very different and obviously they compete greatly with each other. But I think it's fair to say that you would be hard pressed um, in the 17th, if you were looking at the 17th century, to see the Catholic Church as uh, necessarily um, 
sympathetic to what we would call um, the use of reason in order to provide answers. Some of those answers might be sympathetic to religious practices, some of them might not be, but the key thing was um, that in the, in the church with the Inquisition and the Index, you got much more control over the process of thought or would be control over the process of thought. So, and I don't see that as replicated to the same extent in Protestant um, states. Some are more uh, have more authoritarianism than others, but I think on the whole, their 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 political culture, their their use of religion as a way to define, restrict, and constrain thought is much less developed. Now, if that gets me shot at or you in trouble, you know, tant pis, as the French would say. It's intriguing, though, that that should be the case. After all, the, the King of England is the, uh, um, from Henry VIII onwards, the, the supreme governor of, of, the, of, of, of the Church of England. Uh, I mean, see, there isn't. The uh, monarchy is associated with itself, even more so with religious distinction. Well, first of all, there isn't a pope in Britain. I think that's an important point. Second of all, the... Um, the situation uh, as you know if you'd had Elizabeth I in here to have a discussion about her role vis-a-vis -vis Puritans in the 1590s or Charles I in the 1630s they would have actually been bewailing how little their their powers were and in some respects claims do not constitute um uh, and, you know, most monarchs didn't claim to have a divine right, as it were, um, but claims are, were, um, had to be tempered by an understanding of, of the situation, and that becomes very dramatically the case after the Glorious Revolution, as we were discussing um, the last time and the previous time, when we were talking about how you end up, I think we were talking about this two weeks ago, how you end up with a situation in which the dynastically um, best claim monarch, James II, who of course has also been anointed and all the rest of it, um, is not uh, the monarch. Um, and you end up with monarchs who quite clearly have their authority as a result of a set of political devices. Uh, and I think that is quite significant. Um, and I wouldn't, I mean, you know, there are all sorts of things you could argue. You could argue that Henry VIII, an adult male, is in a position to take a greater role than the young man that succeeds him, followed by the two women that succeed, um, and that this constrains and limits their ability to act as a sacral figure. You could argue that. I mean, there are a whole host of ways you could look at it. You could argue that the repeated changes, I mean, Edward VI to Mary to Elizabeth are, you know, his really quite abrupt changes, weakens the ability of England to be a church state, that too many clerics, until you get well into Elizabeth's reign, have seen repeated changes in what is orthodoxy and what is due practice to have, as it were, an emotional background of support, uh, which says that, yes, whatever the monarch says is correct, because they know jolly well that when the monarch dies, things may change. It may change even before that as indeed with Henry VIII's changes. And of course, if Elizabeth had been had died and been replaced by Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, yet again. 
So I think you have to slow it down a bit and think about the practicalities of the politics um, and also the extent to which in individual communities and individual families in England and the same in the other parts of the British Isles, there is respect for or cleaving to particular practices, including Catholicism, you know, you could argue that maybe up to 10% of the English population, certainly 6% of the English population remain Catholic. I mean, obviously the percentage is to rise again with the Irish coming in in the mid 19th century, but you know, that itself and Catholics being particularly numerous in Lancashire, for example, in, and in Western part of Sussex. Um, and you could argue that that represents very major uh, sort of uh, limitation on whatever you might think of the uh, sacral authority of the crown. Mm. Well, that period of um, um, English, indeed British history, between 1701, where the Act of Settlement makes very clear that the uh, throne must continue to pass through a Protestant, which is then extended in 1707 to, to, um, to Scotland as well with the Act of Union. This period, running all the way through to 1829 with Catholic emancipation uh, granted, uh, despite the, really the hostility of King George III, who thinks it's against his coronation oath. Um, I wonder if you could just summarize that, that period in, in British history and the centrality of Protestant religious faith with the notion of British kingship. Well, that's fascinating. By the way, I mean, you're right, George III was against Catholic emancipation, but in 1829, it's George IV, though he himself is also not keen, but you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. Right, well, there are two particular approaches, each of which associated with a famous and distinguished historian, and then I'll offer you some views of my own. One view is that um, British nationalism is very much constructed round a Protestantism, particularly an anti-Catholicism, and that's associated with Linda Colley, who wrote a famous book called called Britons. Uh, the contrary view taken by Jonathan Clark argued that Colley and others had downplayed tensions within Protestantism, particularly the difference between Anglicanism and nonconformity, and that these represented a very major uh, rift. So you're Scottish, I mean, as you will know, in the 18th century in Scotland, roughly 5% of the population is Catholic. The division is not in Scotland between Catholics and non-Catholics, it's between Episcopalians and Presbyterians. And, um, you know, Clark would argue, not Presbyterians and, Angl and uh, Episcopalians, but he would be looking for the same, um, as it were, Episcopalians, Anglicans and non-conformists in England. What I'd like to, and I think they both of them, um, just to be a nuisance, both of them there is some weight in. I mean, I think you've got both narratives sitting there at the same time, and this should not surprise you. People are, are not, uh, one of the reasons social science is so rubbish um, is it presupposes that human beings are either A or B and builds its models accordingly. It's complete drivel, of course. People have the capacity to hold in their head a number of different identities. Um, and in the religious term, you could be um, both anti-Catholic and anti-established anti, um, church, you know, anti-Protestant established church. It's not at all impossible. In fact, many people were. Um, so um, I think there's a lot, of, a lot to be said for both their viewpoints. But if I might add, you, you asked me to look for a common pattern. Well, first of all, I would say 
and um, going right back to, as it were, some of my earliest work, I, I first published, I've actually found my first publication, major publication, as it were, uh, which dates from 1976 recently. But in the early 80s, I was writing quite extensively about uh, British history in the 18th century. And I was arguing very much for the significance of religion. Um, and I would still hold that. And I would argue that religion um, understood uh, in a great way as anti-Catholicism, because anti-Catholicism politicized religion. It gave it a, didn't mean you necessarily disliked your Catholic neighbors, didn't mean that at all, but it meant that your sense of values in the country, you know, when the Brits sang about them not being slaves, they meant they weren't being French, they meant they weren't being Catholics. So it's partly to do with this sense of identity as a liberal in their terms, not, not American terms, liberal, um, um, sort of property, propertied, believing in the rule of law, etc, etc, etc. A lot of that was conceptualized around anti-Catholicism, um, as, as well as a belief in terms of national independence threatened by France, Spain and or Jacobitism. So I think that that was an important narrative and it made it quite hard to then propose a different set of political values, if you wish, you could call them enlightenment. I think that's a problematic term. And I, and I put a big question mark against that because enlightenment again has many mansions, many rooms in its mansion. But nevertheless, you could argue that uh, removing civil disabilities was an enlightenment project. And obviously, I mean, that was more problematic in the case of Catholics, because leaving aside the Irish issue, which was extremely important, um, it interacted with the national narrative, the national sense of history, and um, a sense of anxiety about abroad. And if you wanted to play with this quite interestingly, you could point out that uh, civil disabilities are taken off in the late 1820s, which is a period of relatively benign economics, uh, very benign international circumstances for Britain, uh, relative political stability. I mean, we don't want to overegg that, but relative political stability. Therefore, it seems safe to push through these sort of things. Whereas earlier periods, you know, you've got to be much more cautious about it. I, you know, I don't want to just take that point of view, but you know, that point of view could be one that is taken. So. I would argue that anti-Catholicism is crucial to a sense of nationalism, whilst at the same time, so I agree with Collie in that, whilst at the same time accepting Clark's point that much of the political debate within England uh, and also Scotland, and also for that matter Ireland, where Presbyterianism is very much uh, against the ascendancy, um, very much looked to tensions within Protestantism. The Catholics were just not numerous enough or important enough to be defining figures in the, uh, in the political struggles within the British Isles, other than in Ireland by, the 19, by 1798. Mm. Well, th those tensions within Protestantism are uh, very important in the politics of the 19th century. There's the uh, battle to end uh, the, the tithes, uh, and also in Wales and Ireland, the battles to 
end the establishment of uh, the, uh, the Church of England in, in Wales and in Ireland, the, the Church of Ireland there. Um, how much was the role of the Crown uh, as Supreme Governor of the established Church brought into these debates? Oh, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Well, I remember uh, um, Walter, what's his name, Walter Armstein, giving a very good paper on Queen Victoria's um, sense of religion and showing that, you know, she changed, her views and values changed. Um, she showed herself quite accommodating to uh, the other, eventually quite accommodating towards the other religions in her dominions, uh, you know, meeting, for example, uh, Irish Catholic prelates, etc, etc. Um, uh, I would say that one of the points I would bring out is that Victoria had committed values, but had the common sense not to try and adopt a uniform policy within what was a multipolar empire. Now, well, uh, let's just take this by multipolar, you know, different centers, different identities, different, um, different cultures. Um, one of the reasons why I think a lot of modern writing and critique of empire is very deeply flawed is it presupposes that there was a unitary model of empire in the part of successive British governments. Well, um, you'd be hard pressed to find a unitary model of most things on the part of many governments in the 18th and 19th century. It shows tremendous ignorance on the part of these writers about government policymaking. But on empire, there was a very clear understanding that there were many differences and that part of the nature of empire was managing these differences. And I think it's fair to say that the monarchs were quite signed up to this. I mean, as you correctly say, um, uh, the um, um, Catholic uh, emancipation had been a major issue. After that, monarchs do not make a comparable intervention. And on top of that, the British state as an imperial project, I mean, it encourages missionary activity, Christian proselytization. But, I mean, if you look at the biggest in terms of population uh, colony, well, it's not a colony, of course, it's a very much more complex system of uh, governance, but we'll leave that to one side. Uh, India, you will know that there was um, very restrictive proselytization. Um, so I think, you know, you wouldn't, you'd be very hard pressed to see the monarchs as, as it were, trying to enforce some kind of British universal Anglicanism. Um, and again, as I've said, that would be a mistake. Now, um, I think it's fair to say um, you would not, you would be not surprised to hear that Edward VII did not reverse that policy, <laughs> nor George V. <laughs> I mean, so um, I think it's fair to say that um, these individuals might or might not take their religious duties seriously. We'll leave that to one side. Um, and, and Edward VIII classically didn't, um, but um, I think it's reasonable to argue that 
um, they accepted uh, as imperial figures a very pluralistic religious culture. And that was easier for Britain because of the nature of British Protestantism. So in a way, British Protestantism was conducive to the attitudes to what was on the whole a benign imperialism. And before people shout at me, the lack of context is so incredibly obvious for those people who are critical of empire because there were atrocities and terrible episodes in British imperialism, but in the sway of history or in comparison with other imperial projects uh, and policies and practices, of the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries, actually it was a singularly benign empire. I'll get you into trouble for airing uh, that, won't you? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's conclude by talking about uh, a religion in the House of Windsor um, and going right up to the, to the modern day. The Queen is, is not only a deeply devout woman, but uh, a deeply devout Anglican uh, her son and heir is spiritual, but not so wedded to Anglicanism. He's talked about being defender of faiths, plural. Um, what, what really, in a, in, a secular, in a largely or increasingly secular country, what really is the significance of uh, the Crown's religious role now? Has it become a, 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 almost an irrelevance or... Uh, does it still have some function? And if the Church was Church of England was disestablished at, at some stage, would that in any way alter how we perceive um, the British monarchy? Well, again, there's a whole, that's fascinating. There are so many points bound up into that, Graham. So, um, and I might not cover all of them just simply because holding them all together in my head is not easy when I'm tired. But let me try. First of all, I'm not sure we are such a secular society. I think. Um, religious belief and practice is probably stronger than many people realize. I think that if you look at population growth, um, some of the air, some of the groups in the country which are growing fastest, uh, South Asians, for example, often express their community feeling through religion, whatever their individual uh, beliefs are. Uh, Islam seems very strong. And one noticed in the response to the COVID pandemic that anti-vaccination was much stronger among particular groups who had a kind of providentialist account, you know, God will spare me this kind of stuff. Um, so there's that. And it's interesting that, you know, clearly, if you're looking at Northern Ireland, sectarianism has scarcely departed. And I would, you know, I would put it to you, there are many parts of England and Scotland that have sectarian. So no, I'm not sure that it's, um, I'm not sure it's secular. And on top of that, many of the other ideas being encapsulated in the country in order to express identity are done so with a fervor which which is akin to religiosity. So, you know, is green, I'm not knocking greens, but is green a rational response? Maybe so. Or is it another form of pantheism? Maybe so. You know, you could you could argue that, but I'm I'm just simply saying you've got to be careful about assuming secularism. After all, I mean, I mean you would have looked rather silly if you were in visiting, I mean, I remember visiting the Baltics at the Eastern Baltic Republics at the beginning of the 90s. And, you know, there'd been all this communist um, indoctrination saying that, you know, they'd ended religion. And I remember going to the cathedral at Vilnius and, you know, it was standing room only. Um, 
So I'd be very wary. But having said that, clearly, um, we don't, you know, we get some politicians who uh, um, who like to talk about, um, um, you know, their, their religious faith, but not all that many, you know, not all that many. So how do we, how do I take your question about the relationship between the House of Windsor? Well, first of all, I think that leaving aside prudential accounts of, um, of, uh, of monarchy, monarchy also helps people like religion to have a sense of identity and continuity. And it's no accident that the two are linked. That doesn't mean that they are necessarily interdependent. After all, people used to say the Crown and the House of Lords was closely linked with well, the House of Lords has become a laughing stock uh, full of placemen and mediocrities. Can we leave that in, please? Um, whilst the whilst the um, you know the Crown goes on stronger than ever. Um, so I think the um, the uh, you have to be careful of that one. But I'm not myself sure where we look, you know, you're trying to imply that if religion, if religion is weaker, and we are more secular, or maybe more multi sec multi religious, maybe that's a different way of looking at it, then the position of the church of, of the monarch as head of the established church in England is anachronistic. Well, that depends upon the attitude of other religions to the Church of England. And the mainstream of the other religions seems quite prepared to accept the status of the Church of England as an aspect of national identity. So I'm not sure, you know, that I'm not sure that you would, that one could push that too far. And it may well be the case that in a country and society which is uncertain of its position, it may well be the case that there is, whilst on the one hand, frustration, frustration possibly encouraged by uh, aspects of you know, the BBC and such like, whilst there is frustration with aspects of our inherited past, nevertheless, at the same time, that provides people with a sense of meaning, not least if progressivist accounts of the future seem rather questionable. I mean, I thought it was very interesting, the enormous respect paid to Her Majesty when and her comments on COVID, on the nation being together and on being vaccinated during the COVID pandemic. Um, and, you know, the contrast between her and the position of President Macron, who was not similarly respected, or President Trump, um, who was also not similarly respected, is, I think, a very interesting one. Um, so I think that people who write off monarchy, um, you know, they may succeed if they're, you know, like a lot of people who go for change, but they, they, are, they are fools if they imagine that what replaces it will necessarily be better. I think that's, I, that's what I would say. And I think that's quite an important point because, I mean, obviously um, you could say, oh, well, there's this wretched conservative offering his views. I, I would simply say that you, you need to understand that in every society, um, people want as well as need and relish 
a sense of value other than themselves. And they don't want this sense of value to be simply that of hostility to others or some kind of, uh, of interminable and endless uh, civil war of opinion and values. Now those elements will exist and will go on existing, but you need more in a society. And I think that element of, of um, more, this would be a terrible world, but you know what I mean. Uh, that element of it in part in constitutional terms comes from beliefs, which we challenge at our, at our peril. One of those I would say is the continuing role of the monarchy. I would like to argue that others are innocent until proven guilty, which I'm afraid to say has been totally sapped by the processes of many institutions, and, but I think it is an absolutely fundamental one. Uh, equality before the law, which I think is absolutely fundamental uh, to British society. And, and I know this sounds silly, but a sense of fair play. I think that's very important in British culture. So that there are a number of elements from the past which are important. There, are, there is no shortage of people to attack those, but I have to say, I think these people are at best fools and more commonly dangerous fools. Well, we must leave it there. Um, talking us through the role of crown and cross and uh, fools, dangerous and otherwise. Professor Jeremy Black, as ever, thank you very much indeed. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.